Action Park Media. Okay, I am a huge fangirl of Melissa, which you might be able to tell. I don't feel like I'm not on my voice as much on this episode because I'm just so stoked that she actually did this episode with me. She's a marine biologist, marine scientist, an amazing speaker. She's written five books, as I learn. Uh, and not only that, she's breaking glass ceilings. She is paving a new pathway for herself, and she kind of teaches us how to do that as well. So enjoy it. It's Pretty Depressed with Melissa. Um, I'm joined by the amazing Melissa, who has written now, I believe it's three books. Is that correct? Four. It's going to be, well, four slash five, if you count that it's the same book that's coming out, but in two different languages. I reckon you can claim that. I reckon <laughs> go for it. Five, for sure. Right, five. There we go. Five okay, books. Perfect. Um, so there are many reasons why I wanted to talk to you today. Um, during... Um, uh, COVID and lockdown, I started my journey into marine biology. So I'm certified entry level, but um, fascination with sharks, fasc- fascination with everything under the water. And when it came to finding women in this space, there was a lot of people doing research, not as many people like on shark weeks and in the field and things like this. And your name came up a bunch from kind of people I was connected with. So I was just wondering for anyone who isn't familiar with you, how did you kind of embark on this journey and find yourself kind of one of the most sought out women in this space to kind of talk to and speak to research and also on a public platform? Yeah, so I am originally from Puerto Rico, which is an island in the Caribbean, for those who don't know. Um, And as an island, I was privileged enough to grow up surrounded by the ocean. Uh, Those are my first memories. And I actually talk about it in that new book that is coming out, Mother of Sharks, at the end of May, where it opens up with my childhood and me just scampering around the tide pools and just being endlessly fascinated by them. And that fascination never went away. And so as I grew up, I was like, okay, how can I continue answering all of these questions that I have about the ocean? Uh, And one of the ways that kind of stuck in my head immediately was to become a marine scientist. Uh, So I am lucky that as a role model, I have my mom as a scientist, but she's complete like opposite. She's chemistry. She was in a lab. Okay, Uh, yeah, cool. No, completely opposite, but I did have some sort of a scientific role model. She was no longer a scientist by the time that I kind of came around, but she used to tell me stories and whatnot of the work that she did. And so when we moved from Mexico to the States, I was at an age where if I'm running around surrounded by boxes and stuff like that, I'm probably going to get up to mischief and I'm probably going to break something. So my parents just sat me down with a remote and they were like, here, you can watch whatever you want. And right. it was my first time getting to like watch English TV shows and whatnot. And so the Discovery Channel came on and because we moved in the summer, uh, Shark Week was on. And that was my first kind of foray into seeing sharks was this great white shark kind of breaching out of the water. And it just enthralled me ever since. And I'm quite lucky that my parents were very supportful of their seven-year-old daughter being like, cool, I want to study sharks specifically. I know I've told you since I was four that I wanted to be a marine biologist, but since I'm now seven, I know specifically what I want to do. Yeah, And it's study sharks. And they were like, all right, we'll support you. Probably thought it was a phase. Mm. Uh, turns out it's a very long 20 plus year phase. 
beautiful. That's uh, yeah. And so since then, it's just to be honest, it's been that childlike curiosity. Um, that little Melly is still in me, still asking all of these questions, and that's why I'm currently doing my PhD. I mean, behind me, you kind of see the office and stuff like that. That's why I'm doing my PhD on sharks because I still have all of these questions. And, you know, I think I'm going to go to my grave with all of those questions about sharks because I'm just endlessly learning about them. Now, I know one of the... In one of the books, you you say like there's just so many different types of sharks. Do you have a favorite? Because, you know, people go great white, Maybe they can name a couple like Hammerhead, like, but yeah, do you have a, do you geek out? Is there one kind of unsung hero that you're like, I wish everyone knew about the. (laughs) So yeah, there's actually over 500 different species of sharks. Uh, My favorite out of like the common ones is probably the tiger shark, just because it's an absolute beauty, really charismatic, uh, just absolutely stunning and the way it hunts is incredible but of the like unsung heroes kind of like you said probably the caribbean rough shark it kind of looks the shape looks like a fried wonton that has fins and is like very dark and a little bit burnt um it's such a unique species of shark i mean that whole entire family that they belong to is quite unique uh yeah, and is i wish people knew them a bit more is no wobb- no Ooh, sorry Different. Yeah. I was like, is the Wobbegong part of that? I was like, you could describe nah. it as a wonton, I guess. <laughs> Completely different. I, w- I would describe a Wobbegong as a, a like shaggy carpet. So a bit more flat. Like a pile of clothes that got left behind. Like, yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. <laughs> Starting to grow things at the end. <laughs> Ooh. Um, so, okay. So you're, I'm assuming that part of your journey is also like hands-on research with them underwater and stuff. Um, What is new and exciting in the shark world? Because I was kind of looking into things to ask you about, and a lot of the research that was available or new research is all dated 2011, 2019. So for those of us who aren't pursuing a career in science, how what do you look for and how do you land on new science and how does that kind of journey take you? Do you find dead ends? Is there that many people really researching them? Like, is it all on you? No, there's a lot of shark scientists around the world. Uh, I'm doing my PhD here in a Curtin University in Western Australia because Australia has got, I think it's like 180 species alone mm-hmm. uh, and quite a lot of them are endemic so you can't find them anywhere else in the world. Uh, a lot of my research is hands-off so I'm not so much doing the tagging. I've helped sci- other scientists do tagging uh, but I do a lot of hands-off stuff. So I work with drones as well as something that we call baited remote underwater video cameras or brubs for short. It's a fancy way of saying they're like cameras in a cage with a little treat bag at the end of it to bring in like the animals a bit closer so we can take video footage of them. So that's a lot of the work that I do. Um, But I mean, the shark science world is constantly evolving. So I just covered some recent research uh, that was using eDNA. So literally just samples of ocean water and scientists using DNA to kind of sift through all of the different kind of almost like fingerprints that animals are leaving behind as they go through those areas. And that's how they're able to describe, okay, these were when great white sharks were recently in the Mediterranean. Uh, Here in Western Australia, it was actually just announced today, they've discovered a new species 
species of shark that that journey to describe that species of shark actually started back in 2011. Uh, and it's from collections that have been around for like a while. And so I think it's really interesting that a lot of the collections and the research from the past really is kind of setting the foundation for the discoveries of the future. Yeah, I, I guess because that was my question of, you know, being in this space and I don't know, is it competitive? Like, are you trying are you following like the scent of something because you're like, hmm, that's a weird behavior, but I can't share. I, I'm, I guess I'm trying to tap into what might be relatable about your industry and and what some of those hardships might be. And if you are trying to find discovering things and researching things, the pressures of that and how that looks and do you have to keep it? secret. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I don't know all about all the other different industries in the world, but I think sure. science is probably one of the more cutthroat ones, um, especially because funding can be so competitive. Usually you have quite a lot of people going for pots of money. Um, mm -hmm. So funding kind of bodies that are in reality, quite small. And so, you know, you can sometimes have a whole entire lab kind of competing for the same exact stipend or grant and one person gets it or nobody gets it or only a few people get it. So it can be quite cutthroat um, and it can't be quite competitive as well. Um, I'm really lucky that I'm in a lab that everyone is quite supportive of one another, but I've had friends who, you know, they've had lab mates or people within their own kind of group actually scoop them is what we call. So take their research idea and actually present it as their own for a grant or take their research and do it as their own and get ahead of it. So yeah, you know, I feel like the science industry is very similar to other industries where there is a lot of manipulation, a lot of backstabbing, um, a lot of pressure to kind of get your information out there as fast as possible because you want to be the first and you don't want to be scooped. Um, but science is also like any other industry and in that there's a lot of sense of community there. There's a lot of support when you find those good people. Um, there's a lot of people who kind of are going through the same exact pressures as you. Uh, for example, with me finishing the end of my PhD, I've got a lot of friends who know what that end of PhD kind of... Uh, race is like. And so a lot of them have been checking in and being like, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? Is there anything that we can do to help you? Wow. That's nice. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it helps make science a little less lonely because especially like as a graduate student, it can kind of feel like it, it can feel lonely. Um, you know, there is a lot of mental health issues for graduate students. Um, especially international students such as myself. So my family, if I want to go see them, it takes me about a 40-hour trip via plane and multiple planes to get yeah. over to see them. Um, I'm completely isolated here in Western Australia when it comes to family members. And so especially during COVID, you know, it, it's really hard, especially when you come from a culture such as me with my background of being Latina, we are a very big community-based culture. Um, you know, there are multiple generations living in my house. Uh, at one point, you know, you've always got family around you. So at times it can kind of feel a little bit suffocating. You're like, oh my God, please leave my room and knock <laughs> for the first time. Um, but at other times, you know, I kind of miss it of constantly having like my siblings there or my cousins or my aunts, uncles, uh, my grandparents. And yeah, it's, it's definitely a bit of a culture shock when you go into a new place, add on then the pressures of the graduate school of, you know, you're either on a stipend or you're not on a stipend. Um, if you're not on a stipend, then you have to work. And on top of work, 
Like you then have to make sure that you're hitting all your milestones for your graduate degree. Uh, you're doing a lot of writing. You've got all those other pressures of uh, applying for funding for your research project. Uh, there's, yeah, there's a lot that goes on. So for a lot of graduate students, their time in doing their bachelor's, their master's, or their PhD is actually a lot of times tinged by having high anxiety, having depression, um, a, a slew of other mental health issues as well. So I have anxiety and depression and overachiever and like routinely get burnout. Would you say that you would kind of tick some of those boxes as well? Like I feel like you have. Oh, definitely. I'm sure burnout is uh, very prevalent in the world that you're in at the moment. Um, How out of curiosity, because I think there will be a lot of people listening who maybe aren't pursuing a science career, but are, you know, striving towards a a goal that requires a certain mm. level of sacrifice, like you're saying, living away, not having that support system. What um, what tools or what have you put in place to help you? Or are you like me and you're kind of like, ah, oh, <laughs> doing a podcast to get everyone else's great ideas to try and help it? Yeah, you know what? It's a little column A, little column B. Um, yeah. I do have some things that are in place to kind of help me out. So, you know, I send text messages to my parents every day just, even if it's a good morning, good night kind of message. Um, and I try to talk to them every week. Same with my other family members, usually during the weekend, try to talk to them. Um, I am engaged. So my fiance actually lives on the other side of the country. <laughs> and so oh. what we try to do is um, have weekly date nights. So we can at least have that kind of togetherness. And we try to have on the calendar when we're going to see each other next. Um, so at least long distance doesn't seem as horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a lot of friends who, when they see me being on like social media a lot, they're lovely. And they're every now and then they'll be like, have you drunk water? Have you eaten? Have you slept? Yeah. Um, and are just constantly like reminding me, like I got a Snapchat from one of my uh, best friends who is now working with my other best friend in the same office. And they sent me a selfie and they're like, these are your two best friends reminding you to sleep. <laughs> And I was like, okay, I'll take my melatonin and go to sleep. Thank you. Um, so a lot of them, it's I'm, kind of... I'm grinning from ear to ear because I'm the same. It's like I can overachieve in all these areas and then just suck being a general human. Like, yeah, uh, I have a I, I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect. Like earlier this week, I sat down at this computer at nine o'clock. I didn't really look up again until like three. And I was like, oh, I'm hungry. I should, I've only eaten a granola bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I should actually probably eat today. Uh, so I'm, I'm not perfect with it whatsoever. Um, and you know, there's flaws with it as well with all of the systems that I've kind of got in place. Um, you know, life happens and your carefully laid plans will definitely go askew. Like for example, um, with my PhD, things have been completely scrambled because of COVID. Uh, and for reasons kind of out of my control this year, my fieldwork has been pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. And I'm supposed to be getting married in October. At this rate with how things are going with the PhD, I might have to do fieldwork, go get married, and then have to come back here and live apart from my brand new husband <laughs> for God knows how long. And, and also to add to that, my parents wanted to make a really long trip over to Australia to like, you know, hang out with me, get to see me for the first time in a while. And I'm like, well, might be in Perth. Enjoy Sydney for me. <laughs> so I'm working really hard to just get all of that field work done and 
just get all that analysis done. So at least I can stay over there and be like, cool, I'll just do all the writing. And I don't have to worry about that. But, you know, it's one of those things where they say you make plans and the universe laughs at you. Totally. Yeah, I've heard that one a lot, Lucy. Yeah, make a plan and God laughs at you. It's like, oh, okay. Mm. All right. But but it's one of those things where especially like with how unscheduled my life is right now at this last couple of months of PhD, I am really lucky that I do have that support system that kind of just supports me. Even from afar, you know, I've got a few friends where I'll message them like, I'm so sorry I've been MIA. Like, I'm sorry that you haven't heard from me for a while. And they're like, don't sweat it. Like, my friendship isn't with you isn't based on how many times we talk. It's on the quality of the talk. You know, I know you're going through a lot right now. We'll talk when we get to. So having a really understanding support system is key in kind of getting through this. And I, I mean, to be honest, not even just through the PhD, having an understanding support system is key to get you through life. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. Um, I'm curious because, so my dream that I'm following is, you know, pursuing acting and presenting. And for me, who has a very overactive, quick brain, very busy, lots of tabs open, which sounds like perhaps you do as well. Um, The euphoria and the magic that I feel between action and cut, because I'm in my state of flow, all that noise goes away. Do you have that underwater or when you are face-to-face or doing this research? Like, is the rest of the world quiet? Yeah, it's not even so much quiet. It just doesn't exist for me at that point. It's very much, I'm one of those people where I'm constantly thinking of the future of what can I do right now for the future, for the future, for the future. Yeah. Being underwater is really the only time I actually get to be present. And I think that's probably why I like it so much is because all the voices, all of the to-do list, all of the hecticness kind of goes away and just, yeah, melts away. And it's just me and and the animal and that environment. Um, And be it for research or be it, you know, I've done um, some TV hosting as well. It's just the only time I really get to be present. And that's why, you know, whenever I'm on shoot, the thought that's kind of constantly going through my head is I'm so lucky this is my life. Like, I love this. I love this. I want to do this for the rest of my life. Well, I imagine you probably will. So that's quite good. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully <laughs> that is the plan. In that basket. So, yep, may may you have a long, fruitful career. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I, I just wondered if there was that parallel because when I try and explain it, it's like that's why you put in all this effort and work because that is... I wish that I had that feeling with my friends and family, but in all honesty, there's usually at least some voice of like, oh, I've got to do that, I've do that. But for some reason in that moment between action and cut, there's that is it. And I, I can relate to that feeling when you're underwater of, yeah, you're not in your head, you're exactly where you should be. And it's a pretty addicting feeling. Oh, definitely. And I mean, I'm I'm the same exact way where sometimes, you know, I'm out with friends and family and I, I'm glued to my phone because the work that I do with is throughout different time zones. So it might be bedtime for me over here in Western Australia, but the US is just waking up and somebody there has sent me like a whole long to-do list of things that I need to do. And if I see that before bed, I'm not going to go to bed because I'm going to be like, oh, well, I need to do this, this, and this, and this. And it's just going to continue replaying until I go to sleep. And so I think, again, back to those healthy habits of putting your phone down after a certain amount of time, not looking at your emails before a certain amount of time, uh, you know, making, we, we make it a game sometimes, me and my fiance, we put the phones 
face down on the table and whoever picks it up first has to pay for dinner or pay for the meal that we're eating, stuff like that. Um, I think it's with those healthy habits, you have to intentionally carve them out. You have to intentionally do them, whether there's motivation there or not. It's that consistency of doing them, um, which leads you to having a healthier outlook in life or at least a healthier relationship between work and the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Totally. Do you feel uh, an element, and this may be a pressure that you feel organically or it, maybe you do get pressure from elsewhere. You wrote somewhere that, you know, people shouldn't be afraid of seeing sharks. They should be worried if they don't see any kind of, I guess, you know, speaking to climate change and, you know, endangered species and stuff. How, how much of that is driving this research? Is it also that you feel like you need to yell at people or shake them to make some changes or, or is it just, yeah, what, where, what, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it really is kind of like this. It's a pressure both externally and internally. So externally, I know the fact that you've a lot of those 500 different species are threatened with extinction right now. And so you've got that pressure of if we don't do something, this is going to like this isn't going to change. This is how like the future is going to be. We're going to lose these animals. And on a almost molecular level, I can't handle that, knowing that we're going to lose such an important part of the ecosystem. It then turns into that internal kind of pressure of what can I do? I have to do something. I have to do something. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the firstborn child of immigrants, the firstborn daughter of immigrants. Yeah. Our job is fixing things. Yeah. And so that is me, like, me through this work, me through science communication, through podcasts, through writing, is me trying to fix it if we really go down to it. And sometimes it's absolutely exhausting. Sometimes it's absolutely depressing, to be honest, because, I mean, you don't have to um, be a scientist to see that a lot of the news regarding our environment right now can be quite sad (laughs) and overwhelming. And so it's, one of those things where you, you really, yeah, you kind of internalize that pressure of what can I do? What can I do? What can I do um, to make it a better world for not even like just myself, but for my younger brother, for my eventual kids, for his eventual kids, like go on and on and on. And so, yeah, I, I think it's both an external pressure of being in the field, knowing what's going on and then being like, all right, I'm a fixer. How can I fix this? Hmm. Is there anything, um, and just from me watching a lot of Shark Weeks, I always find how animals adapt to change so interesting uh, and how tu- how humans, we struggle a little bit. Is there anything impressive that you've seen in the shark world recently or in the past about how they've adapted in your lifetime that you have seen firsthand that you've been like, shit, that's cool. I guess what I'm saying, yeah. like I've watched a few of them and I think I always find it interesting how now they hunt in packs or, you know, some of the great whites and things like that. Is there anything that you have seen? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think within my lifetime, it's been a bit too small to see kind of any evolutionary changes, but we have seen some things where um, evolutionary wise sharks have been able to adapt to their environment. Do I think all sharks are going to go extinct because of climate change? No, I think sharks as we know them, might if things don't change around but sharks as a whole i mean they've been around for 
over 400 million years. Like they're older than trees. They'll be around in some shape or form in the next one, unless we completely decimate them. Um, so I, I think, yeah, evolutionary wise, I haven't seen anything just in my short lifetime because I'm just not old enough to see it. But we've seen how they've changed in response to climate change. So we've seen their ranges kind of getting larger. Um, we've seen their coloration actually changing and being manipulated by uh, climate change. Uh, when you say seen... range, sorry, just because I... Ooh, yeah. Other people listening will be like, ah, so I don't know what that... Do you mean like the distance they're traveling? Is that what Yeah, you... so we're seeing oh. them either more north or we're seeing them more south oh, okay. um, as well um, in different places. So almost in a way like chasing cooler waters, so closer to the poles. Um, uh, so yeah, definitely seen a change in their range, um, seen a change in their coloration patterns. Um, those are just two off the top of my head that I can think of. Um, but I think, yeah, as climate change continues to change our planet, we are going to see evolutionary adaptations from not just sharks, but a whole slew of animals in response to, well, mm. the storm we've created, essentially. So funny. My 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 geeky question, which is not to do with anything other than the fact of uh, maybe you know the answer. Why are all the great white sharks in Stewart Island in New Zealand so angry? <laughs> Do you have a theory on that? <laughs> it's like, no. Like, you know, New Zealand prides ourselves on like, we're so cool and easygoing. And every shark week's like the angry women, female sharks that are in Stewart Island. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh. I mean, I feel like if someone was consistently describing me as angry, I would probably get angry at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they're angry. I don't think they're any more okay. aggressive than another um, great white shark population out there. Their hunting methods may be seen as more aggressive, but I think temperament-wise, they're not any different from other great white sharks. But that's, I mean, I need Propaganda. to caveat that with saying I don't that um, population. I don't study those species. So, you know, it could be completely wrong. But from what I've seen... <laughs> Which is funny when you like, you know, New Zealand doesn't get much mention in anything, but for some reason when it comes to sharks, we get a bit of a mention and then it's always like, oh, but oh, Stewart Island. <laughs> it's like, oh, they need better footage as well. It looks so dire. It's like, God, anyway. Um, that's, I'm sorry, this is my own geek out question to ask you. Um, uh, I am curious about the the world of, of science and if you have found any difficulty kind of being a, a female behaving this way and not to, you know, I know that, you know, we don't want to hang our head on gender or anything like that in 2023, but I do know you have mentioned things about a glass ceiling. You mentioned that you got to go and speak at, uh, I think it was somewhere in Georgia recently and how that was a really big thing for you as a, as a woman as well. I just wondered if you could speak to that, trying to inspire a lot of my audience are females and they are striving for goals. So yeah, maybe paint that picture for us and then kind of how you have navigated through it. Yeah. So STEM, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, um, has this very notorious thing that's called the leaky pipeline when it comes to women and people of color or misrepresent or under uh, represented peoples. Um, so that is the fact that we keep trying to shove people into this pipeline, but because there's actually no structure in those industries to support women and people from underrepresented minorities, they all leave, hence the leaks. And so 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the first one, uh, to deal with that kind of misogyny and, uh, on top of also, uh, racism and ageism up to a certain point as well. Uh, and I know I'm not going to be the last either. Um, I mean, I, I've lost count of how many times I've had some sort of sexist comment, um, or sexual harassment happen to me in the field and outside of the field as well, um, both in field work and in the lab or anything like that. And so, you know, it's been everything from like a comment of someone being like, Oh no, you shouldn't be doing field work or not. We're not going to have you tag the shark because you don't go to the gym. So you're not strong enough here. Just write the data points, um, everything to like pull on, like just sexual, harassment and assault. So again, I'm not the first one to deal with it. I'm not going to be the last one, unfortunately. Uh, And we're also not the only industry to deal with those kind of issues as well. But I think what makes STEM deal with those issues a little bit um, in a more unique way is that we have an added component of our work, which is field work, which can happen in very remote places sometimes, which adds a level of danger to it. And so, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I had a few friends who did field work in the States and it was close to the Mexican border and they themselves are Mexican. They are also uh, U.S. citizens, however, and they were out remote doing their field work and they had farmers come up to them and they were with shotguns being like, what are you doing here? Like, you're trying to cross over illegally, like we'll take care of you, da 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 da. And it's stuff like that that a white man's not gonna have to deal with. Um, it's stuff like for me, whenever I go out into field work, and especially we're out in a remote place, um, I've always got a whistle that it's not even a whistle, it's actually kind of an alarm that you, I think it's called Little Birdie or something like that. My mom actually got it for me, um, where it's a little kind of keychain completely unassuming, has a little flashlight. So you think that's what it is. It's like a torch. If you rip off the top of it, it gives off this alarm that you can hear for miles. Mm -hmm. And then people can come out and find you, essentially. Like, that's the idea, is to attract attention to whatever is happening. Um, That's not something that people are going to have to worry about here. Um, Here in Australia, I, I can't carry around a taser or mace uh, or pepper spray because it's illegal. But over in the States... Yeah, that's what we did because you have to protect yourself from who knows what, sometimes even your own lab mates. So there's such an added danger field to our work because a lot of us do that remote field work that you just don't see in, say, like a corporate office setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually something uh, me and a few other women are actually writing an article about um, to be published in an academic journal of how organizations, how universities, uh, how businesses can better support women and underrepresented communities in these environments, especially field work, because it's getting to the point where the mental stress and the mental load of it is driving people away and being like, you know, you can be a brilliant scientist, but if you're constantly having to worry about you being assaulted, you being murdered or arrested, uh, are you going to stay in that job? Are you going to stay wanting to do that? No. So it's a very, very big issue. It's something that a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to the leaky pipeline, uh, but it's there. 
No, I, and I, I really appreciate you shining a light on it. I know it's, you know, something that a lot of industries, probably all industries, you know, like face in some level, but um, you're right. I hadn't considered the fact that, yeah, you guys are potentially in the middle of nowhere and yeah. So it, yeah, that is a huge element to it. Um, in one of your posts, I read that uh, you thank someone, you know, you never know how people can thank you and you've got to ask and you don't know, like, do you have a certain way that you conduct yourself? Um, or, or were you given some good advice? Like my, my dad's advice was always like, you know, if you're meeting someone through business or someone you want to connect with, or, you know, find something to talk about that's not business that you can connect with. So like maybe they love bees or they love honey, like a reason to mm. reach out. Do you, is there anything like that that you could impart or a token of advice, whether you were given it or that you would like to pass on about like how to conduct yourself as a woman who wants to propel forward in this space? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh for a lot of people in STEM, they kind of see their identity as whatever it is that they're doing in regards to their jobs. Uh, So up until recently, I would always introduce myself as, hi, I'm Melissa, I'm a marine biologist. And that was kind of it. But we're people first and foremost. Um, So I don't do that as much any longer unless I'm specifically networking. Uh, it, It is one of those things where when you're interacting with people or you're networking with people, you've got to remember that they're people first, you know, ask them about those interests outside of work, ask them about, um, you know, if you know that they come from a unique culture, ask them, you know, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? If you feel comfortable, like I've always been interested. Um, do you mind me talking to you about it? Um, you know, a lot of people, uh, so Cinco de Mayo just passed by There's so many people ask me like, Oh, you know, can, <laughs> sorry um a lot of people were you know asking me like oh you know do you mind me asking what Cinco de Mayo actually is like is it this whole Cinco de Drinco thing that the United States is is it Mexicans Independence Day and I was like thank you for asking no on both accounts Mexico doesn't even celebrate it it's just this one little bit of Mexico that celebrates it the rest of us were like well yay congratulations we're waiting for Independence Day in September um (laughs) So, yeah, I think if you want to get far in this industry, you need to remember that relationships are going to be the most important thing you get. And for me, at least what's what's worked with me is remembering that people are people, you know, bond over the humanity that you both have more so than the titles that you hold um, or the degrees that you have or those skills that you can kind of have like, oh, look, I can do R. Oh, look, I can do primer, whatever. Mm. Does that have to come up in the first conversation that you have? Probably not. Um, Does it become useful maybe later down the line? Like, for example, um, actually, Jack, who's right behind me, he's really good at primer. He's really good at R. And sometimes I ask him questions and stuff like that. Is that what we bonded over? No. So it's certain things like that where you've kind of got to remember the humanity of things first um, over anything else. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're not going to remember people's titles or accolades and stuff like that. We're going to remember them as who they are as a person. You know, how do they make you feel? How do they make you laugh? How do they make you cry? How do they make you contemplate life in a different way? Mm. Such a beautiful way to end a, a family friend's funeral the other day. Uh, someone said, in, in the end, we're all just stories, you know, and, and as a beautiful way of saying like, yeah, that person who passed was just like in so many people's memories for that reason of like good times and stuff. And it hit me because I do think I'm so goal oriented. Sometimes I forget to do that living part of stuff as well, you know, so. Mm. But, yeah. Uh, 
I love that. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, we all are stories. And so, you know, share those stories that help make this planet a better place. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And you've done that with not one, not two, not three, not four, but five books. (laughs) And hopefully more to come. (laughs) More to come. I love it. Hey, uh, thank you so much for your time. I'm so, so grateful. Sorry, I took a bit longer than anticipated. No, 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 no. Thank you for your patience. I really appreciate it. No worries. Awesome. Hey, thank you, babe. I appreciate it.